Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. We continue a short series through the book of Psalms. Today we come to Psalm 77. Last Sunday we were in Psalm 63. And there are some similar themes between these two psalms. Crying out to God in distress. Last week we were reminded that God's steadfast love, His covenant faithfulness to His people is greater than anything this life has to offer. And Psalm 77 does a very similar thing, but gives us a specific means by which we can be encouraged in difficult times. You see, we're tempted to look at the world through the lens of our situation. We're tempted to look at God and transpose onto him what's going on in our lives. So if life is difficult, we transpose onto God that he must be a harsh master. And when life is going well, we transpose onto him that he must be gracious. The psalmist does the same thing in Psalm 77, but then corrects his heart by the Spirit's work. Let's read Psalm 77 and see the powerful working of the Spirit in the heart of Asaph, and we pray that as we do this, it would do the same in our hearts. Hear God's word from Psalm 77. To the choir master, according to Jedithon, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever? And never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work. And meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people. The children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thanks be to God for this word. The psalmist has some different memories as he goes through this psalm. 
he has some painful memories. He has some helpful memories and he has some healing memories. That's how we're going to look at what's going on in this passage today. First, we're going to look at these painful memories that correlate with his painful situation. And then we'll move on to look at his helpful memories and then his healing memories before we look at the application to our own lives. First of all, these painful memories are clear in verses 1 through 9. His painful situation opens the psalm in verses 1 and 2. And he repeats this urgent outburst to God. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. If you have ever been in such desperation that your cries to God have taken this verbal form of crying out, you have a sense of the depth of what is going on in the psalmist's life right now. He's crying out with his voice. And this is not a pain that quickly fades. This is an enduring pain. This is one that seems that it's not going away. It's not subsiding. This, it's one of those moments where you wish more than anything the pain would just go away. Verse 2 says, it's day and night without ceasing. He just hopes that whatever it takes, it would end. Even sleep doesn't matter compared to the pain. And so Asaph stretches, stretches out his hand to heaven, reaching for something, and he's not about to stop reaching out to the heavens for help until that pain is gone, his untiring crying out. He's cried out in voice. He's cried out with his hand. And in verse 2, we see at the end there, he also cries out with his soul, which refuses to be comforted. There's nothing, it seems, that can remove the pain he's enduring. This is emotional so far. And, and we're not going to camp here, although we could do an entire sermon on these few verses. Psalm 63, I think we got into this in detail. But what we see in this emotional outcry is it's not just David. It's Asaph too. Men of God, inspired by God. This is a plea to God. And I think our culture has done itself a disservice when we imply that there is strength in ignoring our pain and pretending like things don't hurt. We think that there's strength in growing calloused to what we face. Maybe you have endured something difficult, but you've not let yourself process it because that would bring tears. That would look weak. This psalm is an implicit invitation for you two to come. To cry out to God. To join with Asaph and to join with countless believers through the ages who have cried out to God by these words. Let your heart then follow the pattern that we find here in these words. First of all, we find in verse 3 what, what we mentioned at the beginning. Asaph is engaging in that natural tendency to transpose onto God what our situation is like. He remembers God through the lens of his struggles, and rather than it leading to comfort, it leads to further despair in verse 3. He says, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. The more he remembers God's past covenant love to his people, the more his situation appears to be irredeemable. The more he remembers the goodness of God, the more painful his life appears to be in contrast right now. 
The goal, and Asaph will get there, is instead to look at your pain through the lens of God. To look at it the other way around, to adjust our perspective in the midst of our trials, to see that there is at least the potential for eternal good as our faith is tested and tried and either strengthened or proven false. And Asaph will indeed, before the psalm is over, be able to look at his pain through God's lens. This pain of discipline comes in verse 4 where he says, even God is the one who holds open his eyelids. God, you not just allowed me into the situation, but you actively are encouraging this trial. I can't sleep because of you. God is in this trial with Asaph. God does bring these to grow and to bless his children as he did Job. Because this trial refines. As difficult as it is, it encourages the sufferer. It's a gracious thing because at the end, the lures of the sinful heart will be that much less shiny. The trust in God will be that much increased. The sufferer will be that much more prepared to enter glory as he or she is molded yet again into the image of the Savior. But in this moment, It is a trial that makes sleep impossible, even when the sweet, sometimes even poisonous escape of sleep is desired most of all. And there are no words to describe how stalled Asaph's heart has become. The entirety of his being unable to respond. In verses 5 and 6, he does consider the days of old, as he calls them, the years long ago, what we would call the good old days. He thinks back to when God was faithful. He thinks back to when Israel was prosperous. And this is just salt in his wounds. Because he looks at what's going on in his life and he says, this is just all the worse. His moment seems even more bitter verse 6, he talks about the song that he remembers. The song in the night. And there seemed to be a couple different types of songs in the night that the Israelites would sing. One was one of great feasting and rejoicing at festivals. But his feasting is not happening now. His rejoicing, his song does not bring joy in this moment. Another type of song was one of comfort and great distress. But even that song... The lullaby does not bring comfort this time. Asaph has exhausted every possible means of finding comfort. He's cried out with his voice. He's reached out with his hands. He is seeking in his comfortless soul. He's remembering and meditating on God who has brought this pain, remembering the good old days of Israel's success, good old days of their flourishing, but all of this to no avail. At the end of verse 6, however, there seems to be a turning point. It says, Then my spirit made a diligent search. This here, he, he doesn't seem to be imposing anymore his situation onto God. He's saying, I am going to really, truly seek with all that I have because nothing else is working. To humble myself. To see what, who God is and what he has done. And that leads us into now his helpful memories in verses 7, 8, and 9. In his helpful memories, he is appealing to the character of God. 
He says, when nothing else is working, I am going to appeal to the right hand of the Most High. The right hand is indicative of power. He says, I'm going to appeal to who I know my God to be. And he lists six questions that shift the foundation of his situation. And each one of these questions reveals a truth about God's character. First in verse 7, he says, Will the Lord spurn forever? That is, will he cast off? Will he reject? Will he discard even those people with whom he has entered into covenant? Implicit in that question is the knowledge that God is a faithful covenant God. The next question he asks is, will the Lord never again be favorable? This this favor that he's seeking, he remembers. This is true of God. This is that same acceptance that God has for the offerings of sinful people. It's this cleanliness in a ceremonial sense. He's like, is God never going to welcome me back into his presence to be forgiven? Is he done being favorable? The next question in verse 8, has his steadfast love forever ceased? That question itself is self-contradictory. Because he knows that God does have steadfast love and it feels in this moment that it has forever ceased. He's asking about the covenant love, the foundation of God's relationship with his people in this question. His next question in verse 8, he says, Are his promises at an end for all time? In this contrast with the, the verse that we've already quoted this, this morning, it's the word of the Lord will stand forever. If that's true, are his promises really going to fail? The fifth question, verse 9, has God forgotten to be gracious? Will he no more show goodness and patience and kindness? And then his last question, has he in anger shut up his compassion? Is he no longer tender toward his little children? Does he no longer have mercy for the bruised reed? As these questions progress, he remembers God's character with every new question. And it seems like in this, he's, his perspective is shifting with the questions, almost like he's calling himself out for his own wayward perspective. As he questions these unchangeable characteristics of God, he realizes that it is not God, but it is his own understanding that is out of line. The questions then seem to serve as an argument ad absurdum. He's correcting his heart, saying, Heart, are you serious? This is God of whom we are speaking. He does not spurn forever. He will always show favor to those who come in the gracious means he has offered. His steadfast love is exactly that, steadfast. His promises have never been broken, and he won't start breaking them now. This is God. He cannot forget, much less forget to be gracious. He does not, and he will not withdraw his compassion, even when he ordains trials for our growth. One commentator says, in asking these questions and in expressing his doubts, the heart of the psalmist comes to rest. 
for he knows that the God of Abraham cannot deny himself or cut himself off from his own people. God can handle those questions that come from your difficult situation. Those doubts when you cry out to him. He can take those, and in that, he will prove to you his steadfast love. And so we too would do well to sit with this selah, this this musical pause that is inserted there at the end of verse 9. To pause and to reconcile what we know to be true about God with that seemingly incongruous difficulty of our own situation. So who God is doesn't seem to reckon with what I'm going through, but let's pause with these questions for a moment and think about them. You remember Asaph's entire being is torn up, his voice, his hands, his soul, his memory, and his mind, his eyes, and now his spirit. But he appeals to something more foundational than his senses and the composition of his soul. He appeals to the foundation of all existence, God himself. He remembers who God is, and he reminds himself of the truth of God's character in those questions. And he could have chosen in this moment to give up and to walk away. He could have chosen defeat for himself and for God and said, Woe is me, it would have been better if I had never been born. But there is another option here. And he takes that other option, and he takes God at his word. When nothing else makes sense, he remembers that what God has said is reliable and never changes. He takes God at his word. He remembers who God is, and he lets that eternal truth provide context and perspective for where he is in his current pain. He chooses to believe. And he does this by the Spirit's empowerment, and you and I can do the same. To choose when things look impossible. To remember who we know God to be. And when the world says that faith is in the absence of knowledge and it is contradictory with logic, that is the opposite of what this psalmist is doing. He is not choosing something that goes against what he knows. He is choosing what he has seen time and time again in God's character to be true. He has begun to see his pain now through the lens of God rather than vice versa. And he moves then into healing memories. Healing memories that come starting in verse 10 and 11 and 12 and all the way down to verse 20. He doesn't just have a new list of memories as we've discussed. This is a change in how he is remembering. So far, the loudest voice in his heart and in his spirit is his painful situation. But he's deciding to give the stand to something else. And when he comes to remember, it's helpful for you and me to see as well. When he comes to remember what God has done, this is obedience. Because God has actually commanded his people specifically to remember. To be people of remembrance. That's what Deuteronomy is about. Deuteronomy commanded that the people of Israel would remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Ask your elders and they will tell you. 
And then they're told to remember from generation to generation to pass it down from one people, from one generation to the next. We find this in the famous Shema of Deuteronomy 6. The command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. He goes on, verse 6, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That you shall teach them diligently to your children. This is, this is implicit remembrance. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is intentionally excessive. Because the world and Satan's schemes are intentionally excessive in reminding us of the lies that he is at work doing. And so we must then, as Deuteronomy commanded, in obedience, remind ourselves regularly. Write it on the doorposts of your, of your house. Tell it to your children. Speak of it. Memorize it. Remember it. And then in verse 10 of Deuteronomy 6, it says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then here's the command. Take care lest you forget the Lord. Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so Asaph decides, I will not forget the Lord. I will appeal to the right hand of the Most High. His sovereignty, his power, his justice. And this has tones of when Moses sang a song of joy after the crossing of the Red Sea, when Egypt had been cast into the sea and destroyed. He appeals to God's deeds, his wonders, his work, his mighty deeds. And he's recalling all the glorious works of God from creation and redemption, to judgment, and salvation. And as he remembers, and as he lets these truths infiltrate his heart in the moment, it leads him to praise. Remembrance and praise go hand in hand. You can't separate the memory of God's greatness from praising him for it. And so in verse 13, he begins a hymn. Again, a hymn very much like Moses' song in Exodus 15, 11, which, which goes like this. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And so in verse 13, we see Asaph say this. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. God is greater than the gods of Canaan. What God is great like our God, the psalmist writes, this becomes a direct affront to the pagan gods of the Canaanite peoples. Their gods were supposed to have authority over storms and rain, over the crops and land, over the waters. But with specificity, the gods of the nations, especially Baal, they come under attack in these verses. There is no God like our God. Who is great like our God? Specifically, he calls upon God's might in verse 14. That same might that Moses celebrated as they had crossed through the Red Sea. As God, as Yahweh had shown and display, displayed his power over the Egyptian false gods. 
And this is a might that has been seen among the peoples, even there where Asaph is, because as Israel came into the land, these people were terrified because they knew that God's hand was with Israel. And we also see in verse 15, God has a strong arm. That arm also is a reference back to Egypt. Because Pharaoh ruled famously with strong arms, with justice and with power. But Ezekiel says it so directly in chapter 30 that that God was attacking Pharaoh's arm. The one thing on which Pharaoh stood and was proud, God made it nothing. And no one could fix his broken arm. Poor Pharaoh. In verse 15 here, it was in fact God's arm that prevailed once again. The arm that had, had conquered Pharaoh. He exercises his power again as Asaph remembers for the redemption of God's people. In verse 15. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. This is the story of how God freed them from slavery in Egypt. And it was God's arm that outlasted Pharaoh's arm. Pharaoh had no chance in an arm wrestle against Yahweh. And God always does what is holy. That's how he opens his song song in verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. This is the way that God led Israel through the wilderness. This is the way that God led Israel through the sea. And this is the way that God led Asaph's life. And Asaph can still say, your way is holy. Even these pains that I am in, I know you are holy and you do what is holy. Even in his days and nights of trouble, God is holy. He remembers then as he moves on, he remembers God is the redeemer in verses 13 through 15. And now he shows us how God is the powerful good shepherd in verses 16 through 20. In verses 16 and 19 especially, God shows his power over the waters. Now, some of you may say I've taken swimming lessons. I also have power over the waters. The waters, though, had great power in the minds of the ancient people. The waters were the place of chaos and destruction and death. The deep, the abyss are synonymous with these waters. They were a place of great terror and dread because that's where the creatures of death and chaos reigned and lived. Verse 16 talks about these waters that that had pinned in the Israelites between Pharaoh on one side and chaotic death, the sea on the other hand. When those waters saw Yahweh, they were terrified. When death and chaos encountered the holiness of God, they trembled because of the might of God. Genesis 2, Genesis 1, excuse me, verse 2 reminds us that God has been in complete power over those forces of death and chaos since the very beginning when it says, darkness was over the face of the deep. He's laying out the scene here. There's death and chaos. But the Spirit of God was over the waters. The Spirit of God was hovering. The very voice of God was able to subdue the death of those waters. He had utter control by His voice. 
And by his voice, he split the waters in two. And by his voice, he placed a, a land of life in between what would, what would have been death. He separated the waters above from the waters below. He put dry land in there, and that is where life flourishes. Just as he had split the waters in Asaph's memory, the the waters on the right and the waters on the left with dry land in the middle where God gave life to the Israelites to pass through, to provide a way when all hope seemed lost. Verse 19 explains that this miracle was God's way of life through death. This is the way of life. And he provides it in the face of death that he opened to his people. They faced that impossible situation. Death behind them on chariots and death before them as the ocean. But those waters fled. And God conquered not just the the sea, but he used it then to conquer the enemies. Asaph celebrates as Moses did. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. This is the kind of utter control over the forces that are most feared by mankind that God has. And we see also in verses 17 and 18 what we mentioned earlier, that as God controlled the storms, he showed that all those other pagan gods were nothing. The clouds and the rain are the sustenance of crops and life, and and even they are under God's control. The storms and the thunder and the lightning are both literally and figuratively descriptions of God's judgment against the wicked as he had used thunderous hailstorms to judge Egypt in the seventh plague. And then in verse 20, we see God is exercising all this authority and all this power for what purpose? Verse 20 says, You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You led your people like a flock, like a patient, faithful, loyal shepherd. He helped his helpless sheep to stumble over the rocks of the seabed, to pass through the dry ground, to find life, even a land of promise on the other side. God is the shepherd who cares for his flock, for you and for me. These are the memories that Asaph has. How do we participate in these memories? What does this mean for us? Well, first of all, we should join in praising God for his powerful displays that we have seen in history where he has preserved his people, where he saved Israel, where he showed his power over wickedness and Pharaoh, and where he preserved the line of Israel to bring the Messiah. Because God is in faithful, loyal pursuit of the salvation of his people. We should praise him for that. But we should also see that we are like those sheep that God led. We are the ones who are led like a flock. God provides a way through our impossible trials, so they seem. A way that we would never anticipate, that we could never find because we our limited, finite humans. We have our pursuers behind us and we have death in front of us. And God has provided a way. We have Satan in pursuit of us from behind and we have sin and evil attacking us from every side. We have the curse of the law and sin which tells us we are dead in our sins and the wages of sin is eternal death. We have that on one side. And we have the pursuer on the other, 
But then God steps in as the Redeemer and as the Shepherd. And before Him, death flees. Before Him, there is no more power in the enemy. How are we freed from Satan behind us and the curse of the law in front of us? It's by the Redeemer. It's by Jesus Christ. He came to be like the people that He redeemed. He came to be like those slaves under the hand of Pharaoh with a body and a human mind and all other elements of true humanity. And he himself endured through great trials, remaining faithful to his father and to the plan of redemption. And it is in this Redeemer, and in this Redeemer alone, that we can find salvation because he offered himself up as a sacrifice. His body was killed. He bore the weight of sin and death for anyone who looks to him in faith. And then he rose triumphant on the third day, and death trembled. He defeated death itself, the very thing that makes the abyss terrifying. And then he ascended to the right hand of God, the Father in heaven, and from there he will come again to reign, to judge the quick and the dead, even as he exercises his authority from there now. you trust in the Savior, He frees you from the curse of death. How then does He guide us as He led these Israelites like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron? Well, He has given us the new, true, good shepherd, Jesus, who laid down His life for His sheep, for this flock that He leads. He is the good shepherd promised. And He is the one who said He would never leave us nor forsake us. He promised that He would give us the comforter. He gave us that spirit who indwells every believer. And the good shepherd continues to guide his sheep by his word. And he saw to it that his word was complete with the fullness of written revelation so that we might grow in it. And he continues to guide his sheep to life by his word, and by the sacrament that we anticipate partaking here very soon. As we join together as the church, we see that he is the good shepherd guiding us in this place. And he is the one who carries us again and again in repentance and in renewed faith in the presence of God. And we also do as Asaph did, and we remember God's faithfulness to us in our lives. Look back at how he has blessed you. Look back at those moments of great joy and let them remind you that this is the character of your God, even as you struggle through the painful moment you're in. And so in our trials, the trials that last day and night, those trials that seem like they're never going to go away, we remember God's deeds. We remember his wonders of old. But most of all, we remember him. We remember God himself, who in Jesus showed his might on the most magnificent display because he killed sin and the power of death on that cross. And we remember how death trembled that day when Jesus rose from the dead. So in the face of our sins, maybe they're creating our trials. We remember that God delivers us in Jesus. And in the face of our enemies who seem to be attacking us, we remember that God brings judgment on them in Jesus. And in the face of our trials, we remember he is gracious and his steadfast love does not cease. This path that you and I walk in this life is through the sea. It's through death. 
it's through chaos. It's through that wilderness where we wonder if we're going to make it out alive. And it is the path, the way, the holy way chosen by our God, by the good shepherd, by which he leads us as his sheep. And this way is the only way that is guaranteed to end in glory. This is the only way that we rise in new life because we die with him as we are buried with him in baptism. As we die to ourselves and we look to Christ in faith, we too will be raised with him and we will be carried to completion regardless of how fiery the trials become today. Look then for his grace when you're struggling. In your day of trouble, look how he is near. And as he chastises you, exercise your faith and take God at his word, choosing to depend even more upon him in that difficulty. Learn to lean on him. Learn to trust in the Redeemer, Jesus, and learn to follow your shepherd. And then the pain, cry out to him. He invites you to, and he heals you in it. Would that our lives would be a hymn like this, where we sing praise to God, where we remind ourselves in the watches of the night who our God is, where we can say, Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend. Through thorny ways, leads to a joyful end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can come and be still in our soul in your embrace as you hide us in the shadow of your wings. And it's not by just trying to be good or trying to have good intentions. It's by fully letting go and trusting in Jesus. We let go of the ways where we have tried to cling on to control and it has led even more into misery and defeat. We lean on Jesus. His righteousness alone given to us in his death and resurrection. We die with him to ourselves and to these lives we've been trying to orchestrate. And we rise in this new life with Christ and the Spirit. Hold us fast and bring us to that joyful end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.